HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by the Brooklyn Brew Shop and Farm Steady, helping you make your favorite food and beverages at home using real ingredients. Learn more at brooklynbrewshop.com and farmsteady.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes.
Welcome to Snacky Tunes. We are coming to you live on a beautiful day in Silver Lake uh, at Kettle Black with Sh- Chef Sydney Hunter the Third. Welcome to Sna- welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Um, so you are I don't want to say a rare breed, but you have been in cooking in the LA scene for fi- fifteen years. Yes, about fifteen years. Fifteen. Maybe, maybe give or take a little bit more. Um, I guess that sort of qualifies you as a bit of the old school with all the people who are moving out here now. Like, you've been in the scene, laying the land for a long time. I have, and I've seen a lot of changes, so it's interesting to see that um, consistently. Yeah, and I think changes for the good, for the most part, right? It is. It is good. Um, You know, when I started cooking, it was a different world, and it's changed a lot um, for the better. Now, you were you're born and bred in L.A., right? I was, yeah. I was raised in Los Angeles. Where'd you, where'd you grow up? I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley. Okay. Was the Chinese food scene as awesome It's then? always been like that. I mean, it's, I think it's really strange that people think that it is the new thing to go to the San Gabriel Valley and eat Asian food, because there's different kinds of Asian oh, food yeah. everywhere. But um, I grew up with, um, with that my whole life. I mean, Rosemead and um, just the name of city in particular. Yeah. Gar- Garvey is a street that down in the San Gabriel Valley... It's full of Asian restaurants. I mean, I think it might be the best Chinese food area and Chinese population for culture in America. I think so, too, because, like I said, all my life that yeah. I can remember, <laughs> yeah. there's always been some Chinese, Vietnamese, or some kind of restaurant. And even in the 90s, I remember um, before I was a chef, I had a bunch of friends who were art center students, um, uh, photographers and stuff like that. And they would always talk about going to Noodle World on Garvey out, out there. It was like it was like, I know. A, it's it, was like a, it was like a new thing, like, oh my god, we're going to this Asian restaurant and it's always being like revived and, and looked at over and over again. I mean it's awesome. I just I recently did a dumpling crawl out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I mean, how do you find the best stuff out there or the stuff that you like? I mean there's it's like it's so packed in and there's so much food. Like how do you even I mean you have decipher? Your, you have your places where they look like they're very popular because people know about them. Sure. Um, I knew a friend who was Chinese that took me to a couple Chinese places. I feel like you need like an he, insider. he knew yeah. how to speak Chinese and, it, and he spoke Mandarin and it was easy to get in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, to get f- the right restaurant and right food and, and, and things like that. So I think you need a little help depending, yeah. depending what it is. Um, there's other restaurants I like going to. One of my favorites that I would a- absolutely go to all the time was um, the Golden Deli. Oh, Golden Deli, love it. It's my favorite. It's 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 awesome, and people think it's like such a journey, but it's not. It's really not that far from where we are right now. It's only a journey because people have to jump in a car. Trust me, living in LA all my life, it's very normal to sit somewhere for forty-five minutes. Yeah, whether it's a a fifteen-minute drive or twenty-minute drive. So growing up in LA, food a big part of your childhood growing up, or did that come later to you in life? You know, I've always enjoyed food. People always have that romantic story that, oh, my grandmother this and that. Sure. And it's true. My grandmother did cook awesome food. What type? Mexican. I'm half Mexican. So, you know, watching her cook was Mm -hmm. awesome and amazing. She made uh, wonderful food. Um, I think later on, somewhere when I was in high school, I always liked making cakes and and food for the girlfriends. Of course. (laughs) And they used to to love it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. he, he makes cakes. He's sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, but you didn't go to getting food right away. You actually, you went to uh, bar, you cut hair. Yeah. I went to school to be a barber in 1995 and I got licensed and I was cutting hair for 10 years. 
and then I've been cooking for 15, so kind of crossing between each other. Did you find overlap? I mean... There was an overlap, yeah. Working with your hands, dedication to detail, things like that? I've always been, like, a hands-on person. Yeah. I used to, like, build models. Um, I worked on classic cars. I work on motorcycles. I ride them. Um, I've always, like... I, I was always using my hands. I used to tear engines out. Um, my mm. brother had um, a 64 Malibu, and I have a 66 GTO. And we just work on cars and yeah. bikes, and I think... You know, the motorcycle part was probably my favorite between the two because you're actually, you know, concentrated on the road. You're using both hands, sure. feet, and everything like that. Sure. So I think always constantly having to use your hands um, is something that I've always liked. Um, but what, what started nudging you into, I mean, you're cutting here for 10 years. You know, you think at that point, like, that's a career. I'm good at this. People are coming to me, you know. But what started nudging you into to cooking professionally? You know, there was many, many factors involved. You know, when I was with my ex-wife, we were doing your typical marriage things. You know? Sure. Um, she was starting her court reporting career. I was doing the barbering. We bought a house at a very young age. So, we, you know, we thought we were doing really good. So I, I thought that the best course of action for me at that time was to take a second career. So Sure. Um, I loved cooking. Um, I enjoyed it very much. I had a friend who thought that I would do very well with it and recommended that I should go to culinary school. So and how easy? You went to here in Pasadena, correct? I did. Um, when it was CSCA, not just the Cordon Bleu, I went to apply in 98, but I could not go because, you know, I didn't have sufficient funds. Sure. So in 2000, they, I got a call back and said, hey, would you like to join or go to the school? We have financial aid. And then the rest is history. <laughs> I mean, going to cooking school at that time... It was a different, or I mean, food was not what it is today. It's not, and I remember sitting there in the office watching the Food Network, and it's it's not anything like it is today. Oh my god! I mean, that was really the first time I would say 2000, 2001, with like Naked Chef and Iron Chef when I started really being like, oh, food is this whole other thing. Food yeah. is like there's there's a whole world out there of this other stuff, but it was other countries and cultures that yes. like where food was important and like America was just starting to like wake up to that it was a little bit different it seemed at the time it wasn't like your kind of like your uh, what do you call it like reality show kind of people would actually chefs would talk about food and yeah. they would actually go to a location oh my god and Jacques Pepin like doing like giant like chocolate sculptures and things like that and being like this exactly. is insane not people being like put bacon in cupcakes and this uh, is well, a cooking show this might sound funny but I remember in the 80s uh, late 80s um, my sister's um, um, boyfriend at the time would always watch KCET Channel 20 oh yeah and there was he would watch all the cooking shows and it was amazing this guy would cook a dinner he'd show you how to do it then he would sit down and recommend a glass or a bottle of wine and drink a glass of wine with his food and that's what the cooking show was about. It oh, was, yeah. It was actually, you know... It was food. Cuisine, like gourmet gourmand, wine, food, and hand-in-hand. Hand. And he explained why the wine went well with the food. And I said to myself when I was watching that, like, I want to be able to do that. Yeah, I want to be able to do that. So you're at cooking school, and you also have an externship at the same time, right? I did, yes. Uh, where were you cooking? Uh, my externship was at L'Orangerie. Just a small, small little place. Nah, that, that place is, you know, only the best restaurant in the last 25 years before it closed, but sure. I, I mean, what was it like, you know, you get into food a little bit later than some people. You go, you're go, you at cooking school, and then you're externing at, like, one of the best restaurants. I was really excited to be there. I wanted to follow the French cuisine. 
Um, I felt that it was truly a base of all cuisines because it take, people take an example of it, mm-hmm. whether it's the Brigard system in the kitchen, sous chef, chef, you know, the hierarchy in the, in the restaurant. Um, I felt that if I can try to master that, then if I went to a different cuisine or a different food, I would still apply those techniques that people use every day. Yeah. I would change my ingredients. I mean, part of your career of being out here in 15 years, and, and, and we're going to get into this, but you you are one of the chefs who put in your time yes. and like worked your way up in the hierarchy in a very traditional way, which you don't see a lot today. No, I mean, I started out in a restaurant where they put you in the back and you're like, you're making a muse bush and that's all you're doing. Did you, any of like the plate throwing, like yelling, like that type of stuff? Absolutely. Oh man. I had, I think, I but think there, everybody, you can't everybody, see everybody, home, but there's a smile on your face because I feel like <laughs> it's like going through like war a bit and like, it's like, I did it. Yeah. I did it and you now have two restaurants that you were overseeing. But anyway, so. Sure. I mean, I, I, I mean, don't want to go, no one wants to really get into that, but I kind of, I can actually laugh about it, but you know, there's nothing, there's nothing more stressful than having a chef angry and then break a bunch of plates Ugh. on top of your station and then all the glass flies out and all your prep and then you got to throw it all away and you got to pull all the prep back out it, and then you're in the middle of the service <laughs> trying to catch up to get those backups up to par so that you don't run out. Just yell at me. Please don't wreck my knees. Just, just, just <laughs> yell at me or throw the plate against the wall that hits the trash can. Um, I think that was probably the most, um, he knew what he was doing obviously, but it's, Oh, it's such, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's such, it's like, I'm not only going to fuck you, but I'm going to put you behind. I'm going to put you deeper in the weeds. <laughs> but also at this time you met, um, Chef Ludo. Yes. And who you would, um, well, what was it like meeting him then? Because you two had a very long journey career together. You know, I started out with him being an extern. Yeah. And then eventually through the years working many different things with him in different restaurants, I ended up uh, being his chef de cuisine, mm-hmm. starting GM because I was the GM and chef de cuisine at Petit Trois. Yeah. Uh, eventually we got a manager because it's just insane to have a oh CDC God. be a, a, a GM, but I did yeah. all the g- uh, general manager responsibilities. But not trying to skip forward to that. Um, but you guys are working together. We're working together. It was amazing to see him at that time because yeah. um, I know everybody sees him today as, you know, the celebrity chef and, you know, you see him on TV and, you know, he's got his restaurants, um, which is amazing. Um, but at L'Orangerie, you know, there wasn't anything like that. And when I walked in that restaurant, he was cooking on the line. He cooked on the meat station and he ran the restaurant from that line, from that corner over there, managing everything, telling people what to do, doing the food. And, and cooking himself to prove to you that he's not just someone who's just yelling at you. No, of he's course. There, he's there doing the food. And I said I wanted to be that guy. I mean, is that inspiration to you that you carry with you today? Seeing that I use that same work ethic today because of that. And he, there was a sous chef there named Frank yeah. who was the same way. He's the, he's the one that trained me, and he was working on a station. I mean, there's, there's no shortcut to hard work and time. There's just not. You can't do this job and think that you can be a master at it um, in a year or say that, hey, I'm going to work on the Garmage station and say, well, I've learned the whole station. I go, well, you haven't learned the whole station. You just learned those dishes. Yeah. You got to learn it. You got to learn it so that if something comes in, you just know how to improvise, how to anticipate. It takes years to be in one station or I should say one area at a time so that you can get used to doing it. And even today when I take resumes and I speak to people who have experience I always kind of move the resume aside and then I do my version of, of the interview, which, you know, it's a little bit more detailed. Um, 
but it lets me know where the people are at, where I can help them, where I can show them technique and what, where they're lacking in their career, where they need more support in that area, which is something that, um, you know, shouldn't have to be a lifelong experience to get the no. get the information you need to do a great no. job. So how did uh, Ludo Bites happen? How did you two start working on that? Ludo Bites was pretty interesting. I was I left Fresh in Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. Uh, working with Jason Travi, and that's where I got my Italian experience. Yes, because mostly up to that point, you've just been doing French cuisine. Mostly French cuisine. I mean, most and, you of know, your career has been French, correct? French, mostly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, French chefs do Italian recipes, too. You know, they make pasta, yeah. and they do different things, and, you know, what they use a lot of uh, Italian ingredients in sure. their cuisine, um, sure. whether it's French or not. Sure. So I, I, I learned a lot with Jason, and Jason was a good teacher because he would always say what was the differences between you know Italian American this is not what we do in Italy this is what this is how the dish is made and um, it gave me more respect for the cuisine same thing with Walter Walter was very good at that as well Walter Mansky did you Um, did you you know sometimes French can be seen as like very technique and very like rooted in this hierarchy thing like that and Italian is like four ingredients very simple rustic did you see a difference in that cooking I, between French and Italian? The thing that I noticed that, yeah, the ingredients are different, a yeah. little bit more rustic, so that's a different style. You know, like you have, uh, you know, you got punk, you got ska. They're two different styles. You sure. Know? They, they fit the same scene. Sure, sure, sure. completely two different sure. things. you can put them both in the same bill. You can. Right, right. I've been, yeah, well, I was a <laughs> punk rocker and I was in a ska band when I was young, so I totally understand what the What was your ska band name? It was called Catch-22. You were in Catch-22? Mm-hmm. That's right. Oh, my... So, um... Yeah, they kind of go in tandem. They go in tandem, right? Same thing with the mods. They go in tandem with right. the Right, they're all there. They're all I would, there. What would you call them? I guess, I wonder what cuisine that would be. But, um, so anyway, so... You so have, but you see the same technique. Yeah. You see the same technique. Same same style, same preparation, such as, like, you know, the way you take care of your mise en place, uh, the way you t- um, train your, your cook, sure. and the execution. It does necessarily always go back to the French style so I felt very comfortable taking the Italian cuisine with Jason because I took my experience and my knowledge in the French cuisine and just didn't do it French I did it with Italian ingredients yeah alright well listen we'll take a quick break we'll take a quick musical break then we'll come back we'll talk about the pop-ups and then we'll talk about probably one of my favorite dishes of last year which is the chicken here at Kettle Black Mm. I, I tell everyone to come and get that. One chicken. of my favorite things, I think there's a couple things that you always try to master, like a, a good omelet, you know, I mean, perfect that, roast chicken, um, I, you know, I, a really good vinaigrette, yeah. you know, for a good salad. You know. I, I think, I think any chef should know how to cook a roast chicken. Anyway, we're gonna take a quick musical break. Uh, here's a song from the archives on Snacking Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.org.
Snacky Tunes. We are here with Chef Sydney Hunter III in the, I can say, very gorgeous Kettle Black. It's a, it's a beautiful restaurant. It is a very beautiful it's, restaurant. It's a beautiful, you walk in and it feels new, but it feels comforting. Um, but we'll get to that in a second. So, year is 2010. You and Ludo have this, or does he have this idea, or do you have this idea together? He, had, he, he had this idea when, I, when, Ludo I, Bites. when he started his Ludo Bites, he was... Um, you know, the seed had closed for a while, and it was going to go through um, a reconception, and it wasn't moving fast enough. So then, you know, Ludo um, left, obviously, and he went to Vegas for about a year or whatever it was, and then he came back to L.A., and he started this Ludo Bites pop-up, and he did it at the bread bar. Now, paint the scene, because today, pop-up restaurants, underground supper clubs, they're, like, the norm and things like that, but in 2010, what was it like to do a pop-up restaurant? I was looking at like, what is this? I was, trying, I was really confused. So you want to do a restaurant that's just going to be here for an, a night or two and then go away? I think that people misinterpret what the pop-up is really because of the way he started it. Sure. You know, it was a place where he can do his food. Mm-hmm. And it was a very genius idea because, you know, opening a restaurant is very difficult. Okay. Has a lot of has a lot of things to it to, to get one open. Yeah. So, you know, while you're on standby trying to do these things they take years you know if you're going to do a build out you got to get permits you got to do this 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 you know it takes a long time so what do you do in between do a pop up right yeah. so essentially what he wanted to do is he wanted to do his food and be himself and do it the way he wanted to and the best way to do that is to you know do it at a restaurant that possibly doesn't do dinner it's only a lunch kind of thing and you take over the restaurant, and then you're able to provide people with a, a different experience, ambiance, um, service, and um, you know, making the food adjustments to your your yeah. your location. You know, you can only execute what you need or can do or can't do, depending on what the what you have there in the restaurant. And so, how did you get involved? I was leaving. Um, I was leaving fresh, mm-hmm. and I was taking a small break. And um, I contacted him and I said, hey, what are you doing? Because sometimes he had these side things that yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. with all the time. And he was already doing his, his pop-ups and I think he did number three. So he did two at the bread bar and then he did this one in Culver City. I forgot what it's, I always forget the name of it. Um, but anyways, if you look up sure. Bites number three, it'll yeah. come right up. So I joined him, joined him for four, five, and six. Um, I think at that time he was having a hard time having 
quality workers, meaning like with experience, you know, not quality such as they can't do the job, but experience. Sure. So working with him on in number four was amazing because I was able to work with him again as a Sioux. Yeah. Um, which I was for him at Bastide. And I was able to cook with him again. You know, that's what I wanted. I wanted to cook with him again. Um, but did you learn new stuff from him in this iteration? I did. It was amazing because I had some tricks under my sleeve that I, that I pulled like, out. You're like, oh, I got... I've been away for a while. I got something new to show you. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, you do it with, with the most respect of possible. Course, you know? Of course. Um, it wasn't about, like, look at what I know. It was more that... It was more like this. He had ideas and he relied heavily on me to execute him. Yeah. And that's what I used to love about working with him at that's great. because he would have an idea and then he would allow me to create the recipes, test it out, I'd present it to him, he would approve it. And, you know, being part of that process makes you feel that you're part of the restaurant as well. Yeah. That's, I mean, and how was your run like there? How many years did you spend doing those pop-ups? With I think it was like a, almost a year because he would open one and then stop and then open one again. So there's yeah. some breaks in between it. But, you know, I did four, five, and six with him. And then I did uh, an episode with him, uh, Casa Pulido, for his Little Bites America. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which was pretty pretty amazing. And I think that was the last time we had worked in a way where it was an environment where yeah. we worked together. And, you know, he said a lot of nice things in his Little Bites cookbook, and I contributed a lot of recipes to it. So it makes me really feel good that I was able to be part of you were that, there. Part of that you, book you were I was part there. of it. And so then after that, you go to Pino? No, I actually uh, went to Bastide, and I was the chef Oh, you went there. to Bastide. Right, right, right. Yeah, so I really wanted to try it out, and um, I was really excited to do it. I mean, that was a restaurant. That was mm-hmm. my second restaurant, and then to come back to be the chef was was more more for me, not really for anybody else. You know. And how did it feel? Was this the first time you were really cooking for you? I was cooking for me, and I think... I think things are difficult for chefs when, you know, I think you really have to start something new, be in a new restaurant. Um, it's really easy in L.A. to take over somebody else's restaurant yeah. or take over somebody's um, um, legacy or whatever they left behind. And you don't really feel like you leave, you know, a presence of what, what you are in, in the restaurant. I mean, you can add a dish or two, but the the problem with that is that people already have that restaurant in their mind as something that means to them to come in. It's sort of like damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like, you cook what they cooked, and it's like, why are you here? And then if you start to change it, people are like, you're changing it too much. That's exactly what you get when you take over a restaurant. Yep. And, you know, when you're when you're starting out your career, you do that. I mean, you don't, you know, a lot of people have a hard time investing in someone that they don't yeah. know or who they are, so they're not going to go that route. So you're going to work in a restaurant that's been open before, and you have to take their recipes you have to do yeah. their dishes and you're trying to put your dishes in and you have to try to streamline them and make sure that they fit with the concept of the restaurant and it's very difficult to to take over somebody's idea it's especially very, when it's not yours it's tough um so let's skip forward a little bit 2014 you go back to working with ludo again at what i consider one of the best restaurants in la which is petit trois yes um and john and Vinny are involved as well um I mean, what is it like to be involved with, let's just say, I mean, and the athletes speak for himself, but one of the most popular restaurants in America. That is doing something that is is awesome. I mean, that to me, Petit Trois is the perfect restaurant because it's doing innovative food, but it also feels like a neighborhood spot. And like, you just feel so taken care of from the second you walk in. I mean, Petit Trois was one of those restaurants that put me light years ahead of what it's like to 
being a, in a restaurant, not just from the back of the house perspective, but the front of the house. I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no back of the house. There's no hiding in that place. That's what I mean. It's very <laughs> intimate, you know. Um, being involved in every aspect of the restaurant, you know, I used to take the door, I used to pour wine, I used to take orders, I used to run credit cards, I was busing, running, um, taking orders, putting in the orders in the computer, I was washing dishes, expo, working the line, no farmer's e- market. No ego. No, no ego about it. No, no. I mean, I love taking care of the customers. In fact, I run into them at Kettle Black. They're like, you used to serve me at Petitois. <laughs> I mean, that restaurant is just... I, I feel like it's the type of place that um, chefs dream of working at. That place, for me, is probably always going to be in my heart as one of my one of, one of my favorite restaurants because working there was like... It fit like a glove. And it was made, and it felt like it was made for me to be there. I mean, it just, it, that, oh, God. I get, I get, so, feel such excitement when I think about that place. And it's very rare to have a place that feels like, I mean, it also feels like it's been there for forever. Yeah. I mean, just like, Lito, Lito made a compliment uh, to me, about me talking to somebody at Bon Appetit. You know, you don't get a lot of compliments from chefs, you know? No. It's, it's pretty much... They're hard worn. It's pretty much, uh, you know, if you're not getting yelled at, you're doing your job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or not getting glass so, in your mise en place. You know, and then if he's not saying anything, if someone's not saying anything, um, you know, high criticism, then you feel like, great, I'm doing my job. Yeah. But, you know, it's kind of like you savor that sweet moment when you actually get a little, a little, a little bit. He noticed me. Exactly. He noticed so. me. Um, um, he said, he made a comment that, you know, for me, was huge, and, and I'll, I'll always remember it every time when he said it. And he says that Sydney knows how to cook French food very, very well, is what he said. I mean... And I, that was a huge compliment. That's huge. I mean, because he's French, and he does French cuisine, and I think that um, he said that, that he was proud that the restaurant was in good hands. I mean, that's that's something you carry with you for your whole life. Um, and it, so, meant, it meant a lot to me, because we worked for a long time. Oh, so, my God, together. Yeah. Now... You know, the majority of your career has been French food, um, which is amazing that you've opened up Kettle Black, which is mostly Italian food. Which people don't have. People are a little bit confused by that. So what made you... Let's talk about how uh, Kettle Black came into existence. How, how did that whole project start? Well, I mean, I don't think anybody has to go into 2016. Everybody has their thoughts about it. And we, don't and have enough, we don't have enough time to talk about absolutely, that. Absolutely. But I was going through a very tough 2016, and sure. I was trying to find a good place. Um, you know, when I went to Superba, it had closed because they didn't want to move forward with their remodel and all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was working around town, you know, paying the bills. I took um, I took a... Uh, they flew me out to Berkeley, and I did a uh, two-tasting twice. Like, they flew me up there. And I was about to leave the city, and, and I wanted to go to somewhere somewhere different. Every time I go try to go somewhere else, they just pull I, you back they in. They, they just pull you they back do. in. Like I I I staged at Danielle, and I took the job there, and I couldn't go for whatever circumstances. Um, I had an opportunity to go to France, but I didn't want to work there illegally. I just I had issues with that. And oh, then yeah. and then um, and then Berkeley, I was taking a job up there that was very serious. Um, and then I ended up staying. So a friend of mine, um, Dario, uh, that I've known for 10 years, um, called me one day and said, hey, I have these guys that want to open a, a restaurant. It's Italian, uh, wood fire oven. I go, you should come and talk to them if you're interested. And I said, yeah, I'm interested. I go, I'm interested in opening a restaurant 
new with my name on it. Yeah. Um, not taking over someone's restaurant, which is why 2016 dragged on for a long time because I said I stuck to my guns and said I'm not taking over a restaurant. Yeah, but I feel like you earned it. You put in the time, fifteen years. You've cooked for the best the city has to offer. Like it's okay to throw down, and say I know exactly what I want to do. Exactly. Which is cook French in your entire career and then do an Italian restaurant. I mean, how? I mean, Italian food. <laughs> how did you land on it? I mean, like I, you know, did you feel that you couldn't open a French restaurant because of petit trois and like that you had to sort of strike out on your own a little bit? A little. I mean, it's a little bit like that. I mean, it's hard to say, hey, you're going to make another petit trois. I mean, sure. I mean, I don't think that I'm going to... I'm a person that likes change. I don't like um, routine. So, you know, to go back to do a petit trois restaurant uh, wouldn't make sense to me. It would no. be like, okay, let's move forward. What are we doing now? What's What can I do? What what inspires me? So, But you know, I, I can see the through line of the hospitality and feeling very... I mean, I you know, I live in Silver Lake and this was one of the first newer wave of restaurants to open up where I was like, This is stepped up, adult, but and it feels like very much like a neighborhood spot but also new and refreshing. Exactly. I mean I I've been <laughs> I've been in this neighborhood a lot, um, growing up. You know. Yeah. Um I remember when it wasn't like you the way you see no. it. And um I remember going to parties out in the craftsman homes up in the hills oh, yeah. with a bunch of students and uh, musicians and you know, like I said there's a lot of art center people um, that would live in these houses you know because it's inexpensive and I remember coming up around here in Boyle Heights and a bunch of other areas so um, yeah this, the, to see it like this now it's pretty amazing yeah um, so let's talk about the wood oven which is really the the center of you know pretty much or a good ch- a majority of the food is coming out of that that oven. What made? Um, I mean, how do you decide to do a wood burning oven um, as the centerpiece for a restaurant? Well, the wood fire oven was something that they wanted here because mm-hmm. they wanted to do pizzas. So a lot of times, people do pizzas out of them, and that's it. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that I'm reinventing the wheel here. It just depends on who's starting it and when you know when a trend starts and yeah. how how does that happen. Um, when I was in Santa Monica, working at Fresh, over ten about ten, yeah, it's ten years ago. Yeah, about almost ten years ago, we had a wood fire oven there. And when Jason left the restaurant, I had to be in charge of it as a sous chef. So yeah, that was per- pretty much my first step to managing a restaurant on my own. I mean, it's not an easy cooking apparatus to manage. It's not. You know, when I we had a bigger oven in Santa Monica and I was doing nine pies at a time and I don't I don't know if anybody who's worked a wood fire oven but try to throw nine of them in there and it's, I mean, it's insane I mean that's insane um, I mean you would burn one or two sometimes but sure. there was nothing more gratifying than throwing it on the hot coals and watching it just explode oh my god because <laughs> the heat is so intense so but um, I, I would be remiss and I know I brought this up in the last segment but that chicken I remember the first time I had it here, and I was racking my brains, and I was like, I cannot remember the last time I had a wood-fire oven-roasted chicken. Um, like I said, cooking in Santa Monica <laughs> after Jason left, I started using the oven. Yeah. I started to get creative with it, and I didn't want to just do you know pizza out of it. I wanted to, to cook out of it, and I don't think that it was actually being utilized at its full potential. I mean, that chicken, how did that chicken dish, I mean, it's it's so, because I've sat at the bar and watched being prepped, and it honestly just looks like like salt, pepper, chili flake, 
That's it. I mean, we brine the chicken because we want it to be a little juicier. Um, the wood fire oven has a really intense heat, so we try to retain most of the moisture as much as possible. But, you know, it's not uncommon for, for people to brine, uh, you know, like a rotisserie chicken sure. and all these things. You know, it's, it's, it's common knowledge. It's not like a surprise, like, oh, my God, you brine a chicken before you throw it in. Um, I just want to focus on it having really good flavor inside and out and, and the best crispy skin. But it's more charred. But oh it doesn't taste burned. It's, it it's, quite, it's quite amazing. I, I love that. I mean, that chicken is... That is a chicken. That is the type of dish where I go, go to this restaurant, get a pizza, get a chicken, get, like, four martinis. I, re- I really wanted the chicken to be one of those dishes that, you know, that really felt... Um, I mean, it's special. It is. I mean, I wanted... I mean, there's a lot of things that you can get at a restaurant, and, you know, people always do family style, but it doesn't equal to the same thing of being in your home, sharing that with your family. Oh. And, you know, I really wanted that dish to feel like when somebody sat down with whoever whoever it is, and you share this thing that, you know, you're having um, hospitality. You feel the hospitality. I mean, I feel like all cultures have a sort of, like, roast chicken dish, and that definitely speaks to like a lot of cultures I think you can approach that mentally that dish different ways and, and find it familiar I've cooked a lot of rotisserie chicken too at Pino <laughs> <laughs> um, and so recently as Kettle Black has gotten settled and going and come established you recently also took over uh, Sawyer I did um, and that's a little bit how is that going because I know that you said earlier that it's a little tougher to come into a restaurant that's already existing and take it over and reinvent it or update it a little bit what's it been like over there you know, it's just exactly that, you know, trying to, you know, when you, when you take over something that's not your idea, yeah. you have to try to put your headspace in that, in, in that restaurant. So tr- it took, it, it took a little bit of time to try to understand, you know, what is Sawyer, um, the kind of cuisine, you know, I have to do dishes that accommodate, um, the guest expectation to what it is when it first opened and then my version of it now. Yeah. So, you know, I want to... I want to maintain the integrity of the restaurant. At the same time, I want to be able to do my dishes. But now, instead of just making a dish like I could at Kettle Black, I have to really take into consideration mm-hmm. if it fits the restaurant. So yeah. it's a little bit it's a little bit difficult because, you know, you have to fit that theme of the restaurant. But it's good to have sort of like your own vision, 100% true, and then also the challenge. Like, I feel like it works two different creative parts of the brain. I mean... I will do my dishes there. I'll sure. present them to the you know ownership, and you know they know best what fits their restaurant because they opened it. Exactly. I didn't open Sawyer, but exactly. my job is to make that happen. Yeah, and you know running two restaurants in tandem, I have two different staff. I mean, that's a I lot. do the cuisine for both restaurants yeah. too. Um, people might say like, "Oh, how do you do that?" I go, "Well, I always put myself in in situations where I have to push myself." Yeah, I mean, so final question, last part. 15 years in L.A. culinary scene, anything the same or anything completely different from when you got started? I mean, what what is it like to sit back and take a moment and reflect on, on, a, on a long career in, I, in a, one city? I think that L.A. was a city that a lot of people didn't take seriously. I mean, there's a lot of places in the United States that people say, you know, this is a food city, this is where you get the best restaurants, and I think, you know, Los Angeles would get a bad rap most of the time and didn't get oh, taken yeah. very seriously. Um, you know, San Francisco's obviously sure. a major food scene there and, and you know, with everything, the, you know, what that is. But during the Michelin came, Michelin came to LA and then Michelin pulled out eventually. 
And, you know, we have Five Star Mobile, and we had those ratings before Michelin came, and that's exciting, you know, to have that in your restaurant when you work there. But a lot of people didn't take it seriously, and I don't know if it has to do with, you know, Hollywood and L.A. and, you Mm -hmm. know, and all these things, but that um, has changed. You know, I think a lot of people are starting to flock to Los Angeles and, you know, take it seriously. I agree. Well, chef, with people like you cooking in restaurants like this, I know that Michelin will be back, and more people will be coming here for f- your food. Uh, I want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for spending time with us. Thank you for opening up this restaurant about a five-minute walk from my house. <laughs> <laughs> my wife and I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank and you. Very and much. we'll be back in for the chicken. Um, where can people find you online? Um, I do have an Instagram, uh, Chef Sydney Hunter, uh, three with three eyes. How's your gram game? Good. Um, it's something new that I had to. Um, you had to do. There's a learning curve there, definitely. I ask, uh, I ask friends, and I ask people like, "What's this, and how do you do it?" And um, you know, it's not a, like a a problem with not with the technology. It's more like the culture of it. How oh yeah. It's a whole vibe. It's a whole thing. I'm trying to understand how to do it. You know, how, how to, you know, I really want to implement just food. And then I did some personal things on it. I'm like, what am I? I'm confused. What am I doing? Is this, is this for work? Is this personal? Should uh, I do a personal one? Like, it, it just seems a little confusing at first, but I, I think I got, I got the hang of it. I think uh, I have no doubt that it's, it's fantastic. Um, we're going to take a quick musical break, something from the archives, and then we'll be back with a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Take him by the neck 
Tambo over there. Man, we are killing it. So it's gonna be a lot fuller in the album. That's um. This program is brought to you by the Brooklyn Brew Shop and Farm Steady, helping you make your favorite food and beverages at home using real ingredients. Founders Erica and Steven started the Brooklyn Brew Shop in the summer of 2009 to get space-strapped New Yorkers brewing. They believe that making real beer from real ingredients can be simple, tasty, and most important, fun. Their beer-making kits are designed especially for stovetop brewing with ingredient mixes for seasonally-inspired beers. They didn't stop there. Now with their new line of Farmsteady DIY kits, you can make your own cheese, bagels, and pretzels right at home. So much of what tastes great doesn't need a lot of equipment, space, or even a ton of practice. With high-quality ingredients and basic knowledge, the possibilities for what you can make from scratch are nearly endless. Through Brooklyn Brew Shop and Farm Steady, Erica and Steven want to help you understand what it is you're eating, how it's grown, how it's cooked, and how you can truly make it your own. Learn more at brooklynbrewshop.com and farmsteady.com. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. That was just She Keeps Bees, and it was uh, Frankie Rose before that. We have Ginger Lee's live in studio. Welcome. Hey. All wonderful five in. Hello. Hi. Um, 2013, forming a band from Long Island. Uh, how did you decide to take this path of music when Long Island is typically known for the pop punk sweetness that comes from there? And uh, what are the influences that brought you all together? That's a great question. I'm Matt, actually, yeah, lead songwriter, rhythm guitarist of the band. Um, I actually started putting on house shows in uh, my house in Valley Stream, Long Island, around 2010. And I met a lot of bands like Lost Boy and Sloth Bear and a lot of different great acts that are still around today. And uh, through there, I actually met a lot of great, like, indie and great pop musicians, including Twin Sister and a lot of other bands that I really had no idea that was happening in Long Island because it seemed like it was all full of post-hardcore and a lot of emo music and, you know, stuff that I didn't really like that time. And we ended up meeting a lot of musicians and they ended up inviting my old bands to play in Brooklyn and we ended up finding a nice little community and a family full of people that you know, just shared this same idea of experimental pop music and wanting to, you know, further this idea of just good rock and roll, you know, not really genre-based music, just, you know, nice rock and roll. Did your house have a name? Yeah, it was called Nana's. Uh, how did you get the name? Uh, it was named after my grandmother. She was sadly in the hospital at the time, so I figured, name it Nana's. Everybody has a Nana, you know, or somebody, so I figured, you know, it's a nice name to have at the time but um yeah through there i actually met kevin our bassist who and his old band who was called gossip striptease one of the greatest names i've ever great heard name. <laughs> great name <laughs> <laughs> and uh through there we uh kept putting on shows and kevin actually went to college with colin our guitarist and one night they uh he ended up introducing colin to me and colin just turned me on to more New Zealand music and stuff from Flying Nun and some of the best indie pop that I have ever seen, the chills and clean and everything that, you know, has influenced me so much. And after that point, we really, we played one show with our old singer at Muchmore's 
And I think after that show, Brian, our drummer, came out to me when I was having a cigarette outside. Really drunk. Yeah, really drunk. You are... I mean... Well, I think think we were both pretty drunk at that point, but uh, he offered if he... Because uh, actually, Colin was playing bass at that time, and uh, Kevin was playing drums, and he actually offered if we needed a second guitar. And I said, well, you know, Colin's really our lead guitarist, and we would really love to have a more solid drummer, and if you're by any chance, you know, a drummer. Actually a drummer. Yep, and he's like, guess what? I've been a drummer for most of my life, so I I could pretty much do that. No way. (laughs) And then 12 songs later, he learned everything, and then, you know, we became a band, and then, you know, after our old singer left, you know, we found our new beautiful singer, Jackie Mendoza, through our (laughs) mutual friend, Chris Topa. And yep, thank you, Chris. And you know, the rest, as they say, is history. (laughs) Why do you think that uh, all of the kind of pop experimental bands were hiding in Long Island, or where do you think they were? Just like bedroom or smaller venues uh, before Nana's like existed. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, sorry. Yeah, I think it was. No, you're you're completely right. I think it was mostly like an idea of just this fear of pay to play because so many venues in Long Island were strictly post hardcore pay to play. And funny enough, one of our first shows as Gingerlies, me and Kevin played as Gingerlies. We played in drag. We dressed up. We played at a post hardcore <laughs> show with post hardcore kids throwing beer cans at us and really giving us a hard time that it night. Is. But a you know, time. that was the thing. I think that because of that, you know, a lot of these experimental pop bands could really find a footing and they couldn't really find like a unique community to be a part of across Long Island and some were from Suffolk County, some were from Nassau County but you know it was really a lot of bands like to me Twin Sister and Lost Boy and Color Tongue and Sloth Bear especially and a lot of great bands that you know really brought an amazing spirit of kids that shared the same idea of just wanting to create amazing experimental pop music across Long Island and you know all you really need like they say is you know the match to light the fire and all I had to do was open the venue and people just came. Does it still exist? It doesn't. Sadly, you know, we had to sell the house but occasionally I'll host shows out there every once in a while but the best thing that came out of that was all the friends and all the fans that we made that supported us and support our music and really help us out now because we all stick together and you know every time we play together we always have that Long Island represent attitude because you know we all know how hard it was for You know, nobody to care about our music, nobody to listen to us, nobody to know that we exist, and for us to have to say that we were a Brooklyn band or we were a New York band, but, you know, now we all live in Brooklyn, we all stay out here, so I could honestly say that we are a New York band, but... Yeah, you know, it's sad that that had to end, but it's beautiful that there are so many venues around here, like Shea Stadium and Sunnyvale and so many places that support... Shea Stadium's in tough times. Yeah. 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 Um, But you still bleed Long Island. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, in certain ways, there's not that much of a scene in actually Long Island, and I don't think, sadly, there ever will be. But, you know, it's it's a nice place, it's a beautiful place to grow up, and I mean, just to really think about it, you know, you have all these kids, like you have me, you have Kevin, you have Colin, who all live in, you know, different places, and we all have this same attitude 
towards rock and pop music. You know, we all really want to do it. We're, you know, not conceited or flooded, you know, with different ideas. You know, we all really respect the truth of what we really grew up on. Let's also not forget Queens. That's true. Can't speak for everybody here. This man, my drummer. Yeah, we have parts of Queens in here as well. Can we hear a song? Absolutely. Uh, what are you going to play for us first? Uh, we're going to play our first song called Elsewhere. It's off our upcoming album that hopefully should be out this coming fall. So this song is called Elsewhere. Live on Snacky Tunes. Let's talk about the first EP. Um, how did it come together? Um, you know, Matthew said you were the main songwriter, but how did the rest of you influence it? And you know, a release and also a Japan release as well. My turn, I guess. Uh, well, oh, how this came about? Um, let's see. Well, we decided to go record at uh, this place called Mama Coco's Funky Kitchen. That's Colin, by the way. Oh, this is Colin, by the way. Uh, can y'all hear me? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Cool. 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 <laughs> Um, yeah, so we uh, recorded there. It was at this one place in Lefferts Gardens. Um, you know, it was like a collective, a really like a very tight knit collective, uh, very positive attitude, very eclectic. They, they uh, liked a lot of uh, um, funk. They were very funk based. It was really not in our realm, but the guy Oliver was really good at what he did. He knew what we wanted. So we it was in 2013, and right around then is when we like really formed um, the name. Brian still wasn't with us at the point at the time, but we. Um, we got that stuff together, um, and that, that that day forward, when the first day we went to the studio, we're like, we're Gingerlies now. We're Gingerlies. This is it. Henceforth, we'll forever be known as yes, Gingerlies. Yes, and I remember the first day we were doing that. On the way to the studio, we said, let's do this. Let's get that. And then um, we self-released it uh, that fall, like September or whatever. 
And then I think we got approached in October by that label, Shelf Life. And that really changed it for us. We're like, okay, now we're like getting put up into there, being released as a 7-inch. And that came out in uh, spring of 2014. What was the um, idea behind releasing it yourself? I mean, a lot of bands are going so many different directions now. I'd be curious to know. You're thinking, like, let's just get this out there. Well, it was our first thing, you know, so we didn't know. You know, it's and it's really, it's really hard. Even for us, our, our forthcoming release, it's so much back and forth with labels so we would have gotten nowhere with that and we also we're just lucky that that label even came to us we didn't expect that but you know at the time for the time before that you know we had that self-release people liked it it was getting featured on some little things friends were talking about it it wasn't much but we played it and we celebrated it it was good and then we got really lucky that following october of 2013 when that label said hey I remember you were flipping out. It was crazy. I remember I was at, I was at cake shop seeing the memories, and all oh, of a sudden, yeah. yeah, it was. I remember it was crazy. Yeah, we don't really have too many expectations. Like you know, with the EP, we really we were sitting on these songs. I had my old band, which had the worst name in the entire world, <laughs> Shattered, Shattered Darlings and Liquid Kisses. There you go. Oh, wow, <laughs> horrible. Uh, but they had to get that second piece in there. Right? Oh, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> but you know, coming out of that, we really you know focus on getting these new songs because I was writing a lot of like more noise, like shoegaze songs at that time these new songs I really wanted to have a tight and concise like pop structure and you know it was really Colin that introduced me to Flying Nun and you know like all these indie pop bands that were so jangly and his style of playing was so different from any other lead guitarist that I ever played with and you know we just we we really wanted to get the songs out there we felt so strongly about these songs we felt so passionate passionate no excuse me felt so passionately about what we were writing at that time that we really just wanted to show the world and we just wanted to show everybody what we were capable of and you know people just really took a hold so quickly it was really amazing and so beautiful we had so many fans and so many people who were so responsive so quickly it really blew us away and we still have to thank all our fans and and how did the release on 2670 come about? That was recent. That was like last year. That was, yeah. That, even, was, yeah. that was pretty interesting. That was all, uh, you know, thank you so much to Hajime Sakuma. You know, he really just contacted us. Thank you, Hajime. Oh, yeah. Jackie had the pleasure of meeting him. Yeah, Jackie actually took a trip to Japan. She yeah. had the pleasure of meeting him. I went to Tower Records and I, um, I saw R.E.P. Yeah, you can actually pick it up for sale. Tower you just had to. Go, you're like, you know what? I'll I'll take the sacrifice. I'll go I'll go meet him in Tokyo. No, no, no. I got this. I I, I got this. Oh, Pretty it's much. It. Yeah. It's in, what a, it's in the, uh, the the Western pop rock. So yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, not all heroes wear capes. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. Level four. Yeah, it was great. We honestly, you know, we just uh, he contacted us. You know, we got an email one day, and he just he reached out and said how big of a fan he was of our songs, and said that he just you know never heard you know songs that inspired him as much. As these yeah, they inspired did. him. Yeah, <laughs> they, wow. and he just really <laughs> wanted to put them out as quickly as possible. Crazy. So, you know, we said absolutely. Like, one of our, collectively, our all-time dreams was to have something out in Japan. So to have that, that was the most amazing thing. And the most special thing about that was we actually sat down and we recorded a brand new song for that called Corduroy Star. Sadly, we won't play that today, but... But it know. opened the show. Yeah. yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it opened the show. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that yeah, we recorded that song as a special bonus track for that EP. So. First song to feature Jackie as well. That's yeah. true, yeah. All our other songs featured all the vocalists. Yeah, but just wait because we have about 10 to 11 more that'll be coming out very soon yep. that'll feature all Jackie songs that we really think have just you know brought us to a completely new and entirely you know just amazing new level than we thought we could be with the EP well we're going to talk about the new record but let's get one more song in before then uh, what are you going to play for us next 
I think uh, we're going to play the song called New Toys. My dad accidentally threw out my box of all my X-Men Mighty Max action figures, and boy, did I ever get sad. So, how do I so I had to write a song about that. Yeah. Boy, do I love these four people that surround me right now. So we're going to play new toys, and we really hope you enjoy it. Weird toys. right now in the new record process i think that we're actually very close to being finished we've been uh working on these songs while we've been writing these songs for at least like the past three to five years well myself i've been working on them for a while but we've been working with our producer connor hanwick who was in the drums who i mean it's been an absolutely amazing experience we never thought that we'd be able to work with somebody that challenged us on the record as much as he was able to so really to break down our songs and really 
really to take out all the parts that he felt were unnecessary and to bring in such a new aesthetic it really felt amazing to work with them but we're you know we we have the record pretty much you know completed it's really great we have you know a little bit of info that we're we can't necessarily talk about right now but we'll no be exclusive able to talk about drop it. we understand <laughs> so, but we'll uh we'll be able to talk about it very soon we uh possibly have a co-release in the works hopefully we we can assure you this album will be out this year in 2017 possibly towards the end of the year but but, you know, with all God's hope, we hope that it can possibly be out during that time. But, uh, yeah, we're very far along with that. We've even been demoing a lot of new songs. And at this point, I've been taking a little bit more of a backseat towards the songwriting aspect. And I really want everybody in the band to write their own song. So I think the next EP that we release after this album comes out is going to be a song contributed by each member of the band, by Brian, by Colin, by Kevin, by Jackie, and everybody's going to, you know, take the forefront and really going to start writing those songs. When you're working with uh, such a great producer, uh, how hard is it to put the ego away from the collective and to really hear them? Or is that why you go in a line with the producer that's so strong and has such a good background? Yeah, that's why we go with yeah. him. Please, Jackie, yeah. Well, I I thought he like helped us a lot and to fill the in the gaps because we're not as experienced with like actually being in a studio and recording a whole bunch of songs. So he was definitely like helpful. He like sped up the process of recording. It was it was interesting. It wasn't necessarily intimidating, but it was very like it was a very amazing process. We really like you know couldn't like I don't know, it's it's a little bit difficult to you know answer that question <laughs> you know yeah, just of course yeah like you know just in a very blunt way. But you know it was very incredible. It was an experience that we wouldn't trade for really anything else. It was something that challenged us as musicians. Something that made us you know actually become better musicians. It really. Yeah, it really made these songs stand out, and he really, you know, he was literally, like, our sixth member, our extra gingerly. He really, he really produced these songs in such a way that without him, these songs would not have the characteristics that they have right now. They really sound so pronounced and so beautiful, and we really couldn't be happier having an album to sound like this. So while it's in its final stages of being put together, when people hear for the first time, what emotion and thoughts do you want them to come away with? I think mostly, at least for me, everything everything in my line of songwriting, for me, I have a very fragmented memory. Like, I really can't remember a lot of years of my life, so it takes me a long time to work on lyrics. So when I actually put these lyrics together, I actually don't really realize I'm a little unconscious towards the aspect that I'm actually writing these stories, not necessarily about myself, but my interactions with my best friends, with my bandmates, with the people that I love and that I care about. And they tell these little stories that I feel like are highly relatable to, like, everybody in the world because it's just it's really the basis of human connection of really just understanding the human spirit and i think like those songs and the writing and you know the aesthetics that all those songs like will come through will really show people the depth in our band that we're not just you know the sweet juicy fruit that you might have heard on the jump rope ep that there's a little bit more depth to ginger leaves than you might think there is but yeah so it's evolved over time 
It absolutely has, and I think it's only going to keep evolving. I think we're all very confident in our songwriting skills at this point, and I think that we've only been writing more songs, and we're only going to get more prolific as time goes on. We just, you know, honestly, our whole thing is that we just want to keep recording songs and releasing songs as long as possible, and we're going to stick together, and we're going to stay a band for, you know, as long as we possibly can. I mean, you can look at us now, we're all best friends, we love each other, we'll never stop loving each other, no matter what we've been through, we're in it for the long run. Before we get out of here, I want to make sure I mention you have some shows coming up as well in New York. We do. We actually have uh, a very interesting show coming up on the 31st of this month with The Sea Life and Den Made, both bands from uh, this label, Babe City Records. And that, Bueno. Yeah. And bueno. Oh, and Bueno. Oh, excuse yeah. me. Oh, I completely forgot. Bueno. Yeah. Extremely stacked, Bill. Yeah. Bueno is probably collectively one of our favorite bands going around right now. And they actually co released something on Babe City and Exploding in Sound this past year. So, you know, you know, hopefully our dream would be to release something on Babe City and we'll see if that dream becomes a reality at some point. But yeah, for right now, we're very excited for the 31st. I think we have a few things, you know, brewing, but nothing set in stone for April right now. But um, we're actually going on tour towards the end of April. Brian, do you know more about that? Um, yeah, so we're going to do Connecticut, uh, Massachusetts, uh, Philly, and we're doing a kickoff show April 20th here in New York with uh, our friends Holy Tunics. Um, so you guys should definitely come out to that. We, um, we will be there. Awesome. And our awesome. collective audience as well, too, not just uh, me and my brother. Um, well, thank you all for coming. It's so great to meet all of you and to have you play in studio. Big shout out to Cattle Black as well. Uh, thank you for a really deep and engaging interview. Um, before we get up here, where can people find you? Get all the information on the new record, catch you on tour, buy tickets, hear the EP. You can totally find us on Spotify. If you, I know it's not really great, but I'm sure most people have Spotify right now. If you want to stream the Jump Rope EP. Yeah, SoundCloud oh, too. That's right. It is on SoundCloud and it's on Bandcamp. I think we would all suggest you to go to Bandcamp because Bandcamp has our Japanese release with Relate to You and all these different things and you Quarter, know that's Quarter the old, Star. That's the old Quarter Star. Oh yeah, Star. <laughs> wow. So this is me. It's actually called Smells Like Teen Spirits. <laughs> that's, that, that's my fault. Confusing song titles. Also, but, yeah. yeah, also follow Jackie Mendoza and her work. She Please do yeah. follow Colin's other band Q. Follow Mel's. And, uh, I, yeah, I actually have uh, another project called Mel's with Lizzie Wakefield, who's in Fruit and Flowers, and Brian Thornton and Matthew Sklar and uh, Brian Alvarez. Our drummer is actually the drummer in the Mel's as well. We're a little bit more of a new wave power pop band, but I would like you guys to check us out too. We just released our first single, McAllister, and you know what? I gotta say, I love my Ginger Lees. I love this band. Thank you. Snacky Tunes Radio. Thank you, everybody, for letting yeah, us come down you. here for all this pizza, for everything. This has been one of the greatest <laughs> times we've ever had. Oh, man, that crowd. Wow. That crowd. Big crowd out here tonight. Wow. That, oh, that crowd is just... Yes. That crowd is just getting it. Wow. I can't, I can't even believe it. Wow. But yeah, if you want to find that, you know, you can find that song. But um, yeah, this is uh, going to be our last song for the day. This is called Turtle Doves. This song is written about my extreme passion for Home Alone, so <laughs> Home Alone two, 2, Home Alone 2 all Home Alone, Home Alone 2, yeah, 2 true. Turtle Doves everything except the third, this song is called <laughs> Turtle Doves, we really hope you enjoy it, thank you Snacky Tunes Radio, thanks for being here
Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.